Good morning. Oh, well, this is working. How are you? How are you? Are you doing okay? I don't think everyone's sure. Would you ask the person next to them how you are? Well, that's what I wanted to know. That's exactly what I wanted. This is, this is the third of the family chapels that we've had, um, and this is my second. I missed the last one, and I'm sorry. Um, it's nice for us just to be us, I think, sometimes. Um, Dr. Tim Stearman is going to preach, uh, bring the word this morning. I ask uh, President Graves to introduce him before we begin. Well, I doubt that Dr. Stearman needs much of an introduction, but I do want to mention to you today so that you can show your appreciation. As most of you know, uh, last June, uh, Denver First Church, under the leadership of Dr. Stearman, gave to the Nazarene Bible College the largest scholarship ever given, over $100,000 that we now have endowed and uh, we will be using for on-campus students. And uh, I know that you will have with a responsive reading and then sing some songs and pray and then continue worship through the ministry of the word. So would you stand? I want us to do this reading responsively. In holy splendor we worship the Lord. In torrents and storms God's peace pervades. The whisper of the Lord snaps silence. The unwavered sound persists. The Lord is awesome. God is with us. As flames being fanned, the presence grows. In its shadow, the wilderness bleeds. The Lord is powerful. God is with us. Enthroned, God rules the universe. In whirling winds, nature acknowledges glory. It is certain, God is with us. Glorify thy name, glorify thy name, glorify thy name. 
and thank him for his goodness and thank him for his grace that's brought us satisfied to leave us where we are but have in mind for us to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We want to acknowledge all of your work in our lives and we return our lives to you anew this morning as a way of saying thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jane and I have a little cabin up Highway 24 at Green Mountain Falls. If you've ever driven up that way and eaten at the pantry or one of those places, it's kind of a good place to be. And so last night after speaking, I stayed at the cabin. And uh, when I went in, I noticed that some things were kind of out of place. The telephone had been knocked off the little table and books off the mantle over the fireplace just kind of odd and so when I went to bed last night I'm lying there and I hear these little foot and I'm wondering well I'm I'm, first of all I'm thankful that my wife isn't with me because she would she would not have been happy until I had captured that mouse or whatever and uh, this morning I woke up and Hadn't been disturbed in the night, but I heard something hitting against the, the metal blinds on the windows. They, on the back, they go clear to the floor. So I got up and looked over the... We have a loft, and it's where kind of the master bedroom is. Looked over the edge, and there was a squirrel down there. And so I started to go down the stairs, and the squirrel decided to come up the stairs. <laughs> 
And it was that scene from Christmas Vacation, if you've ever seen that. It was Clark Griswold. And, and uh, so I had a little battle this morning and got downstairs and got a door propped open and then laid back down in bed real quiet because I didn't know where the squirrel was. And I looked over to the edge of the loft and I have a kind of a, a cowhide thing hanging over there and I... I thought, is that that squirrel's tail? And no, I think that's just a shadow there. So I was quiet as I could be, and I looked back over, and that shadow was gone. And and I heard those little foot again, and looked down the edge of the bed, and the squirrel went by, and <laughs> we're becoming friends, you know. And he went down to the second step, and I had a cap hanging there and I threw it down on that step and the squirrel ran down the stairs and I stayed up and just looked over the edge and finally he walked over and he saw that door open and went out and I ran down closed the door and and now I'm trying to figure out how did that squirrel get in that house and uh, the only thing I can think is he came down the chimney and so I've got to go back soon and put that screen back over that chimney that had blown off in the wind and my wife is coming down with me on Friday to the cabin and I've got to reassure her that that squirrel is not going to be there. So I had fun last night and this morning. My adrenaline's kind of, you know, flowing because I've been in battle against the hordes who were trying to invade my cabin. But... uh, my dad owned a 1959 Chevrolet. Do you remember what those looked like? They kind of had the little long taillights, and the, and the fins, instead of going up, went out flat. It was white. I love cars. And on a Sunday night after church, uh, on Sunday nights after church, he would often give me the keys. We lived in Wichita, and I would go out and start it. I didn't have a driver's license, and I could start the car, and... I'd turn on the radio and listen to music and think I was older than I really was. And usually when it was not cold and I was not bright enough to just send, to realize he was just sending me out to warm it up so the heater would be warm when he and mom got out for my little brother. And I would go out and sit in the car and let it run and rev the engine a little bit, you know. And one particular night I I got a little brave, and I, it, was a, it was a standard transmission, and I, and I put it in reverse, and I let the clutch out, and I backed up a little ways, and then I brought it down into low and went forward and felt pretty good about it. I put it back up into reverse, and I backed up again, and, and, uh, and I backed it up right down into the ditch. Uh, we, our, our church was in a very nice neighborhood, but the streets were not paved. There was no curb and gutter. And I backed it right into the ditch, and the thing got stuck. And I'm putting it in low and trying to get out. And about that time, my father and the men from the church come out. And here I am. I'm in the ditch, and I'm stuck. And so these guys, they come out, and they get behind the car, and they push it out. And, and they laugh at me and tease me about it. And I'm just humiliated about the whole thing. But... But I understand a bit how a guy felt that Jesus spoke about in the New Testament. 
in Luke chapter 10, and you probably would guess it begins with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. How many times have I been in that place? I, I want to I give a reason for the way I'm living. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. They'd robbed him of everything he had, his dignity, his wealth, his health. Everything had been taken. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All of us from time to time find ourselves in the ditch. We've all been there. It's not necessarily because someone has beaten us and thrown us in there. Sometimes it's because we put the car in reverse and backed right into it, not realizing where we were going on the way. I want to talk to you for a couple of moments this morning about what I would call rules of the road when we find ourselves in the ditch. Every group has its own set of rules. I got on the internet uh, recently and I just typed in the phrase rules of the road. I just wanted to see what was on the internet. And I found all kinds of things. You know the inline skaters have rules of the road. Inline skaters. Now here are their rules. Skate smart, legal, alert, and polite. And those first letters of each of those words spell slap. I don't know what that's supposed to mean for them, but it means something. That's the rules of the road. I found that PBS, Public Broadcasting Service, has rules for the road. The Coast Guard has rules for the road. And they're navigating. They're not on a road as such, but they've got the rules. In fact, I saw that there were 1,830,000 websites that had something to do with rules of the road. 1,830,000. Now, I'm a car guy, and I, I love cars. My first car was a 1931 Model A Ford Coupe, and I like that little Ford Coupe. I've had Mustangs, convertibles and coupes and fastbacks. I've had 55 Chevys and a 57 Thunderbird that was my pride and joy. And currently I'm kind of doing motorcycles, but I've discovered that whatever you're into, there are rules. Some unwritten, 
doesn't matter if it's bikes, Mustangs, Corvettes, Jeeps. There's a sense of brotherhood or, or community if you're the owner of one of those particular kinds of vehicles. And one of the things I've noticed as I ride my motorcycle is that most bikers, as you're riding down the street, they wave at you. And it's not one of these, you know, it's this kind of cool, just kind of off the side. How you doing, you know? And, and it's like you're part of this brotherhood of, of, of bikers, and, and it exists in all of these groups. But I see some of these rules spoken of in this wonderful story that Jesus told. And I wonder if you would try to identify with these things from this passage. The first rule that I see in this passage is help. Don't hurry. Help. Don't hurry. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. There's another unwritten rule among bikers that I have noticed on a number of occasions. Not long ago, I was riding with some of the guys from the church, and I got separated from them. And there was another guy behind me, but somehow uh, I had pulled away from him. And so I pulled to the side of the road to wait for the guy that was behind me. And I'm just sitting there waiting. My bike's idling. And from the other direction, I spotted a bike coming. It was ridden by perfect strangers, but when they saw me stop, they stopped to see if I needed help. And that's something that you do on a motorcycle. You don't blow by another biker who seems to be in trouble. And I would venture to say that the same thing is true of other people in other groups, whatever that group may be. If you're a street rotter or if you're into classic cars or whatever it may be, you stop to see if there's something you can do. And yet somehow in life, we see people beside the road all the time. And I'm not just talking about those who stand there with the cardboard sign that says, we'll work, we'll work for food. We see people beside the road in life and we become like the priest and the Levite in the parable. We hope someone else will take care of the problem because we're in a hurry to get to our yoga workout and we've got to make it and we don't have time to stop. This past summer... Uh, a group of bikers from my church revisited a spot that we had uh, ridden to three summers ago. It's uh, Holly, Colorado, which is out on the eastern side of our state. It's four miles from the Kansas line on Highway 50. Uh, Holly, Colorado is an interesting little town. I grew up in Wichita, and every time we came to Colorado, we came out Highway 50, which meant that we drove right through Holly. And from the time I was about 12, I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And we would drive through Holly, Colorado, and I would see the little church, and you could tell how well it was doing by driving by. Some summers we drove by, and there was a sprinkler in the yard, and grass was green, and there was a new picket fence along the front, and some summers you drove by and there was no grass in the yard, and it looked like the tumbleweeds were stacking up around the front door. And, and I must tell you, I would drive by there, and as I got older, as a teenager still coming to Colorado, I'd drive by there and say, Lord, please, don't call me to Holly, Colorado. And I would tell people, I'm, I suppose I'll end up at Holly, Colorado. 
And I did, but it was just later than I had imagined that I would. Because on that day, we took 35 bikers and about 50 other folks who wanted to help the church. And we rolled into that town of 750. It was after the tornado. And in a day and a half, totally re- renovated that little campus. We've been there three or four times in the last three years. And the first time we went, uh, they had nine people the Sunday before we were there. And uh, I had interviewed the guy who was pastoring the church with the credentials committee here when you guys looking for your district licenses or those who are students come in for that. I had interviewed him and asked him about the church and he told me what was wrong with it. And, and so we went out and uh, poured a new driveway and new sidewalks and put new stucco on the outside and new carpet inside and took out the old pews that had been through a flood. And because they had split, they had put carpet over the seat with carpet tack across the back to hold it in. And you didn't want to set too far back on those pews because those tacks still stuck up. So we took all those pews out and we put new stackable chairs in like this. And, and that last Sunday, we brought in a, a, a video truck to broadcast the service from Holly back to Denver First Church on the screens for the people who didn't get to go. And I want to tell you, that was an exciting moment. That was so much fun because on that Sunday, there were more people than you could get in the church. And so my bikers, like you see on the mission field, were standing on the outside looking in through the windows or through the doors as that church was rejuvenated. And it was the new pastor's second Sunday there. And I was supposed to preach that day. But I'd gotten a call from my daughter in, Tope- in, in uh, Denver. And they were, she was having her first baby and having some complications, and she wanted me home. So I went to that pastor and said, Do you, will you have a sermon for tomorrow? He said, I can have. And so he preached via video at Denver First Church on his second Sunday at Holly. And it was just great fun. I, I think that's an example of, of helping and not hurrying past. For most of my life, I had driven past that little church and thought, man, I don't want to go there. And when I went there, it was such a delight. We were putting the new carpet in. I'm going to take more time than I've got here, but we were putting the new carpet in, and uh, there was no place there to unroll it where we could cut it, and so they took it across the street to where there was a, a, a paved road across the highway. And they cut it and rolled it back up took the piece across to lay it, left the other piece laying over there, and a guy in a pickup truck stopped and found it and put it in his truck and drove off, you know. <laughs> but the town's so small, our guys got in a truck and went up and down every road until they found that pickup with the carpet in the back and <laughs> reclaimed it. It looked like a scene from Cops, you know, where they're coming up knocking on the door. <laughs> it was fun. But the, the point is help. Don't hurry. And the second point is heal, don't hinder. Do you notice that in the parable, both the priest and the Levite, the religious folks, passed the guy? And that convicts me every time. They didn't try to heal. They, in fact, hindered the healing process. It's my experience, at least, that in every group, from church to families to little league 
There are people who come to the table with their own agenda. And in their own mind, that agenda is more important than anything else. And you see here, the priest and the Levite had an agenda. And they were important. They had to get to where they were going because that agenda had to be carried out. And as a result, they were willing to hinder the healing process of this victim just to get on with their own agenda. My devotional reading uh, was in Galatians a short time ago, and I came across two passages that really reminded me of this particular rule of the road. Galatians 5.9 in the Living Bible says, But it takes only one wrong person among you to infect all the others. It takes only one wrong person among you to infect all the others. And Galatians 5, 14 and 15. The whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love others as you love yourself. But if instead of showing love among yourselves, you are always critical and catty, watch out. Beware of ruining each other. Oh, man. That's a dagger in my heart. Beware of ruining each other. What does that say to me? It says in the, in the way that I address my staff, in the way that I deal with those who work with me at Denver First Church, in the way that I deal with the people, some of them who are upset with me about things, I have it in my power to make the situation better or to make them more bitter. I heard that Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, as an older woman, used to have a little plaque on the wall. It said, if you can't say something good about somebody, come and sit by me. (laughs) If you can't say something good about somebody, come and sit by me. I want to hear it. Let me clue you in on something. Everyone that you come in contact with has enough junk in their life without you adding to it. We've all got enough junk. So the rule is heal, don't hinder. As much as I like cars and motorcycles, I'm not much of a mechanic. I'm not much, I'm not much good beyond uh, changing a tire and changing the oil. I can do those things fairly well. When I was in my first church as a youth pastor, I went to, um, I signed up for classes at a Votech in the evening for auto body repair. <laughs> I was learning how to weld, you know. Well, in case this preaching thing didn't work out, I wanted something to fall back on. Learning how to weld and how to put a plastic body bondo on cars and stuff. And I learned it really well. I mean, I, I can bondo them up like you go over a bump and the rear quarter panel falls off. But I'm, yeah, that was an interesting thing. But when it comes to the mechanical part, I, I'm not there. I don't. I don't even hold the light right when somebody's asking me, could you just hold? I'm, I'm the guy that the mechanics, that got the mechanics to start hanging up that sign in the garage that says, our insurance will not allow customers in the working area. They did that for me. But that's not true. The insurance doesn't care. They don't care where you are. It's just the mechanics. They don't want me there because I hinder them. I get in the way. You and I belong to God. We are part of the family of God. 
And some of the people around you this morning in this setting are broken, hurting, and they need a healing word and not a hurting word. They need you to heal and not hinder. And the third rule that I found is this. Pay heed, not homage. You see, the good Samaritan stopped to pay heed. He, he knew what had to be done, what should be done, and he did it. In verse 35 it says, The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You see, we can pay homage to a president, a king, a ruler, and not really respect them at all. You can pay homage to these signs that are the rules of the road, but not heed them at all. You can go through life knowing what's right, but just pay homage to that rather than being involved in doing it. I like to try to give my people handles, things that remind them through the week of something that maybe they heard on Sunday. And when I think of this message, I can't think about it without thinking about some of the signs that you see on the road when you drive that should remind us of some biblical truths every time we see them. And the first one is stop. John chapter 5, verse 14 says, Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. John 6, 43, stop grumbling among yourselves, he said. Or John 7, 24, again Jesus speaking, stop judging by mere appearances. And then there's that one-way sign. I remember when I was a children's pastor, we had a little song that was about one way. I can't remember it now and be grateful or I would sing it for you, but I can't remember it now. But I find in Proverbs chapter 14 it says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. What is the one way that I'm supposed to be traveling? And then there's that yield sign. James 3.17, the Living Bible. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and full of quiet gentleness. Then it is peace-loving and courteous. It allows discussion and is willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It is wholehearted and straightforward and sincere. They have started building up around Denver. I don't know if they have here or not. I'm sure they have. Those roundabouts. You got any of those here yet? Do those things drive you nuts or is it just me? But you know, I see that sign where it says roundabout. And I'm reminded of the fact that when I get in there, I'm going to have three or four different choices where I'm going to get off this thing. Or I can just stay on it and keep going in a circle, you know. Which one am I going to take? And then I'm reminded that I can also use that to make a U-turn and go back where I missed another turn or where I missed it. And when I see those roundabouts now, I try to look at them and think in terms of the choices that I get to make in life and the opportunities that I have sometimes to backtrack and make something right that I didn't make right. I would guess that some of you here today are like I was at 14 when I drove my dad's car off into that ditch. But it's not your car.
It's your life. And you're thinking, how in the world do I get out of this ditch? It is by following those rules of the road. Healing. Helping. Paying heed. Being aware of that relationship with Christ that sometimes does grow stale because we allow it to. Can I look at the rules of the road and find my way back so that I can put that car in low and know that there's somebody who's going to be pushing me out of that ditch? Our Heavenly Father, more than anything else, wants to keep us out of the ditches. It's not His desire to leave us there. But sometimes when we get there, like me, we've got it in low and we're spinning the wheels and nothing is happening. And we need that emphasis of God's Spirit, His shoulder leaning into us and pushing us, encouraging us. And sometimes His push is not pleasant because it means I've got to apologize to someone or I've got to make something right, or I've got to pay restitution. Or I've... When my father was uh, saved, he'd been raised in a Nazarene parsonage, but when he was saved, he remembered, he was an adult when he was saved, he remembered as a boy walking along someplace, a road in the panhandle of Oklahoma, and picking apples off someone's tree. <laughs> and he felt convicted about that, to the point where he wrote him a letter to ask them to forgive him. And I hear him tell that story now. He's 82 and he's, his memory is beginning to go. And I'll ask him about that. Now, Dad, I'm sure I wouldn't have even thought about that. He said, well, that was what the Lord brought to my mind that I had to do. We don't talk much about restitution anymore or making things right. But, boy, there's something healing in that. There's something healing in that even if the person we apologize doesn't accept it we know that we've done what we could do and it is as though God has put his shoulder right into your life and pushed you out of that ditch that was holding you captive and he doesn't want us to be there anyway Heavenly Father thank you for today there's so many things about life we're trying to learn seems like it doesn't matter what age we are there's another lesson. There's another thing for us to try to comprehend and understand. And Lord, I'm still on that road and trying to understand the rules and trying to follow those and be a, a helper rather than a hindrance. And I ask today that you would help us as we seek to be uh, those Samaritans along the way as we try to give a word of encouragement, as we try to be a bright spot in someone's life, would you help us? For there's those around us who need it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have an assignment for you today. And this is not original with me. I heard it at the M7 conference, and someone may have already challenged you with it. But Reggie McNeil challenged us with it that day. And it was... When you go from here today, find three people to bless. Sometime this week, find three people to bless and make sure one of them doesn't deserve it. Find three people to bless 
and make sure one of them doesn't deserve it. That's your assignment. You give assignments, so I'm going to give you one. That's it. Are we done? God bless you. Thanks. You're good listeners. Have a great day.